Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we continue with part two of Real Talk on Men's Health. This was an event that was presented live Wednesday, October 25th, 2023. In this episode, we'll be presenting Heart Health, Keep Your Heart Beating, and Benign Prostatic Enlargement. I think you'll enjoy this episode. Stay tuned for next month's episode where we present part three of Real Talk on Men's Health with men's cancers, prostate and testicular, along with metabolic syndrome, diabetes and obesity, updates in management, and medications. Also, for this month's episode, you will find a prior episode six with Dr. Eugene Yang on cardiac and cardiovascular health. And you will find episode eight with Dr. Kevin McVary covering earlier aspects of benign prostatic enlargement. I hope you enjoy this episode and follow along with us for next month's episode for the completion of Real Talk on Men's Health. Exercise leading up to Dr. Yang's talk on cardiovascular health is a constant throughout all health recommendations. No matter what subject I've covered in the podcast on general health, mental health, exercise is key. The American Heart Association recommends 150 minutes per week of moderately intensive exercise or 75 minutes per week of vigorous anaerobic activity, and I'm sure Eugene will cover more of that. So we cover exercise in episodes 5, 14, and 36 of the original Guide to Men's Health. And we cover injury prevention and specific workouts. So uh, next presenter will elucidate how you can keep your heart beating. Dr. Eugene Yang will cover cardiac health and prevention. Dr. Yang is a clinical professor, Department of Cardiology, UW School of Medicine, He is the Carl and Renee Benke Endowed Professor of Asian Health and the Medical Director, UW Physicians Eastside Specialty Center, as well as the Co-Director, UW Medicine Cardiovascular Wellness and Prevention Program. And thank you. And recently, uh, what, the Dominican Republic showing up at 3 in the morning and still making it here. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Rich, for the kind introduction. And it's really an honor to be here to help share a few things. I think the the, uh, previous speakers have given me a good foundation, but I'm going to sort of talk about it from the 
perspective of how I take care of patients and what I focus on in a few examples. So these are some of my disclosures. None of them are relevant to the discussion today. So what I want to do really is focus on the primary risk factors for cardiovascular disease. I think the previous speakers have already discussed sort of the common thread around how cardiovascular risk factors impact erectile dysfunction and how they also potentially impact longevity and aging. What I really want to focus on really is about behavioral and lifestyle optimization of some of the major risk factors, and then a few key takeaways. So cardiologists will really never lose their business unless we figure out how to improve our aging through other mechanisms. But unfortunately, cardiovascular disease is a leading cause of death globally. And in the United States, accounts for about 1.6 million heart attacks and strokes a year and 870,000 deaths. So one of the troubling things that we have seen in the last 10 years is that while we had made significant progress in reducing cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, in particular mortality between the 1990s and 2010s, what you see is that over the past 10, 15 years, that there's been an alarming increase in cardiovascular mortality in both men and women. So you can see mortality in men has now exceeded uh, mortality in women over the last seven or eight years. In 2019, our major cardiology societies, the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, wrote a very important prevention guideline. In fact, it's the first time our societies came together to write a guideline specifically around optimization of health to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. And there are basically five major areas that we're focused on based on letters. So cardiologists, we have acronyms for every clinical trial. So we call it the ABCDEs of prevention. So I'm gonna focus on these, but I'm gonna highlight some of the key things that we review when evaluating cardiovascular risk profiles for a patient. So one is potentially the benefit of aspirin for prevention of cardiovascular disease, alcohol consumption and optimization in terms of moderation of alcohol consumption. Blood pressure is the most important modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Cholesterol is important, as, as was alluded to by a previous speaker, and then cigarettes, nicotine use, and then D for diabetes, diet weight optimization, and then finally, as Rich pointed out, exercise. So in the context of the short time that I have, I'm going to focus on three key things around some of these prevention-specific risk factors. So I'll focus really on blood pressure, diet, and exercise. So as I mentioned, we focus on the ABCDs of prevention that are sort of documented here in this wheel. And again, we will focus on some of these key things that we just that I just mentioned. So what do I do when a patient comes to my practice and this says, Dr. Yang, how do you know what my risk is for heart disease? So we use risk calculators and risk tools. So this is from the American College of Cardiology. So the key things, as was pointed out by our first speaker, is that age is the strongest predictor of cardiovascular risk. So we input age, we put in sex, we input race, there's some limitations to that, and then blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, tobacco use, um, and then treatment with various medications for cholesterol, blood pressure, as well as aspirin therapy that all go into this risk equation, then spits out a number. I'll point out that my own personal research focused specifically on cardiovascular risk in Asian subgroups, and you can see that there is a risk calculator here for white and African-American people, but there's only an other category for Hispanics 
in Asian people because we don't have established cardiovascular risk calculators. And so there's a need to really better understand and discriminate how do we accurately estimate risk. So for example, South Asians have much higher risk of cardiovascular disease, whereas East Asians like Koreans, Chinese, and Japanese are at much lower risk. But as a result of the limitations that we have, we cannot really accurately capture what the risk is among Hispanic people as well as Asian people. And that's what I show here highlighted. So what do we do? So if a patient comes in and says, Dr. Yang, I am interested in understanding where my risk profile fits, we use that calculator essentially to then estimate what your 10-year sort of morbidity mortality is for a cardiovascular event. So you can see that low risk is less than 5%, borderline risk is 5 to 7.5%, Intermediate risk is 75 to 19.9%, and greater than 20% is considered high cardiovascular risk. Additionally, we look at what are called risk enhancers. So one of the things that was captured in the new guidelines was looking at other things that also influence risk, but are not part of the actual risk assessment calculation. So including things like family history of premature heart disease, history of chronic kidney disease, metabolic syndrome, actually diseases that are associated with women specifically, like preeclampsia, also increase the risk of cardiovascular morbidity and mortality, as well as inflammatory conditions like psoriasis, HIV. And then furthermore, there are some additional biomarkers that we sometimes use to provide some additional risk assessment. So as was alluded to earlier, there are some things we can look, like, look at, like CRP levels. We can look at ApoB or apolipoprotein B, which basically represents all the atherogenic lipid particles or lipid proteins that we have in our bloodstream. So again, those are some additional tools that we can use to try to really more accurately capture what an individual's risk looks like. There are some conditions, sorry, that are very important that I highlighted at the top around very high-risk individuals. So this is an important point about knowing your numbers. So LDL cholesterol is the low-density lipoprotein which is really causally associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So there are very high frequency of people who have very high LDL cholesterols. In this case, when your level is above 190, there's a very strong potential that you may have something called familial hypercholesterolemia. This occurs in about one in 200 or 120, 250 people around the world. So if you have a very high LDL cholesterol, this is something that needs to be treated aggressively and very quickly. Additionally, if you have a history of diabetes, if you have a history of diabetes when you're 40 to 79 in particular, those are patients where we would initiate treatment with a cholesterol-lowering medication. So Rich asked me to talk about, you know, what are the goals? So I tried to keep it very simple because I think if you're going to take away some things, it's going to be around some key numbers. So when your risk is sort of moderate, so in this category where you're between 7.5 to almost 20%, we now basically use a goal or target of trying to bring your LDL cholesterol level down below 100. So that's a pretty simple number to remember. If you're in a high-risk group, meaning that you have a history of heart disease, you have multiple risk factors, age being the strongest risk factor, then our target now is to try to bring that LDL cholesterol level below 70. And then finally, that was recently published from our cardiology society, are the highest risk patients, those who've had heart attacks, those who have multiple other comorbidities like high blood pressure, diabetes, et cetera, we now have a target of an LDL cholesterol less than 55. So these are basically the recommendations that were recently published in 2022.
So again, I talked about the fact that there's a limitation, so it's only validated for white and black people. It tends to overestimate risk in higher risk categories. And then again, I allude to the fact there's no really optimal or accurate risk calculator for Asian and Hispanic people. Okay, so I do a lot of research on blood pressure. So blood pressure is probably the most important cardiovascular risk factor, is a leading modifiable risk factor, as I mentioned earlier. And we often describe it as the silent killer because there are patients of mine who come to the clinic with blood pressures of 210 and have no symptoms. So that is one of the challenges that most people feel fine, even though they may be walking around with very elevated blood pressure readings. So again, you need to know your numbers. So whether it's through your primary care physician or urologist who takes your blood pressure, you want to know what these categories are in terms of what is considered to be a normal blood pressure range versus those that are considered elevated or high. So normal is consistently defined across global hypertension guidelines as less than 120. For the top number, the systolic blood pressure, which represents the pressure in your arterial system when the heart muscle is squeezing, and the diastolic blood pressure, the bottom number, is when the heart muscle is relaxed. So blood pressure below 120 over 80 is considered normal. Now we have what we call elevated blood pressure. So these are people that are previously been called prehypertensive, and these are individuals where they are at increased risk, but not perhaps at a great enough risk we would necessarily treat them aggressively with medications. So that's defined as a blood pressure between 120 and 129. And now for the classification of somebody who is diagnosed with hypertension, somebody who has a blood pressure greater than 130 over 80 is defined as having stage one hypertension. And now if you have a blood pressure greater than 140 over 90, then you're defined as having stage two hypertension. This has been a change in the guidelines that occurred in 2017. There was some, I would say, disagreement about the changes because if you look at global hypertension guidelines, there are only a few countries that have adopted these new thresholds to define hypertension, whereas most of the Latin American, Asian, European guidelines have actually maintained the threshold for what we would call grade one in Europe or stage one as basically being a blood pressure above 140 over 90. So there's some disagreement. Okay, so I think we talk about longevity. We talk about how do we actually do things to make our blood pressure better. So as a preventive cardiologist, I prefer not to treat people with any medication, right? I would rather you incorporate lifestyle changes. So I sort of term this the rule of fives. And why did I do that? Is because when you look at specific things that you have the ability to enact upon yourself, weight loss, so weight reduction. So if you lose about five kilograms of weight or about 11 pounds, that can translate into lowering your systolic blood pressure by potentially up to five points. If you reduce your sodium intake, that can also lower your systolic blood pressure by five points. And if you increase potassium, you can potentially also lower your blood pressure by five points. So to give you some context, the average American consumes about 3,500 milligrams of sodium a day. I'm going to give you an example of communities where the sodium intake is much less and how that translates into blood pressure. Additionally, Dr. Pellman mentioned physical activity and exercise. So doing 150 minutes of moderate intensity activity translates also into a five to eight millimeter reduction in systolic blood pressure. And even isometric training, as well as resistance training, also can have similar effects on blood pressure lowering 
And finally, alcohol consumption. So reducing alcohol consumption to what would be considered at this time moderate levels of consumption, less than two drinks on average a day for a man and less than one drink or about one drink a day for a woman may also help reduce blood pressure. Okay, so just to give you some context, so, you know, how is this relationship between sodium and blood pressure? So on the upper left are the Yanomami people who live in the Brazilian and Venezuelan rainforest, and they are one of the most isolated sort of groups in the world. So they were part of something called the Intersalt study that looked and scanned people around the globe and essentially measured their urinary excretion of sodium, which is a surrogate for how much sodium intake that you have. So they looked at places in every continent, in large communities, in smaller, larger um, urban areas, rural areas, places with really no exposure to Western diet. And the Yanomami people represent that. The Yekwana people are relatively close, and they actually have some access to Western food or diet, Western culture. And so they're very close in proximity, but they're very different. So this study was published a few years ago and basically really showed the association between diet and blood pressure and specifically sodium intake. So what will be striking to you is that the Yanomami people, when they surveyed people between ages 1 to 60, which is their life expectancy is in their early 60s, there was no change in blood pressure over the lifespan. So their average blood pressure was 95 over 63. That is quite low. The Yekwana people who had some exposure to Western diet, you can see had a blood pressure that was about 10 points higher at 104, which is still excellent over 66, but just even small exposure to Western diet, processed foods, and more sodium caused a significant change over time in blood pressure. And you can see that at the bottom, I highlight the fact that by age 10, the blood pressure was about six points higher at age 10 in the Yekwana people versus the Yanomami, and by age 50, there was a 16 millimeter difference. So the influence of environment exposure to unhealthy habits clearly has a dramatic effect specifically on blood pressure. So to give you the context, the Yanomami people consume is estimated about one to 200 milligrams of sodium a day from natural sources from their diet, from what they either grow or what they basically hunt to survive, as I said, in the United States is 3,500 milligrams. And this highlights really the change. So you can see the Yekwana people between zero to 60, you see this sort of linear increase in blood pressure with age. Whereas when we look at Yanomami people over age, no significant change in blood pressure. So again, highlighting how important lifestyle has on cardiovascular risk, in particular, uh, something like blood pressure. Okay, I'm going to talk about diet. So, you know, we, I think, really don't do enough education about the importance of diet. And so I, I'm going to share some of the things we have learned from clinical research and studies. So it is pretty clear that probably the healthiest diet is one that is plant-based. So when we look in observational studies of exposure to different types of diets and how much animal protein you take into your diet, Plant-based diet has the lowest cardiovascular mortality. If you add fish to your diet, you get slightly higher cardiovascular mortality. If you add chicken your diet to your diet, your cardiovascular mortality goes up. And if you add red meat, which contains chemicals and other things that are 
unhealthy, you have the highest risk of cardiovascular disease. So I'm not telling everybody here to become vegetarian, but it has definitely been observed in many studies that the plant-based diet is probably the healthiest, specifically in terms of cardiovascular risk. However, when we look at actual real data in clinical trials, there is a paucity of research, well-designed, randomized clinical trials, but the Mediterranean diet probably has the best evidence in terms of improving cardiovascular outcomes. In general, and I think this is probably everybody in this audience knows this, right? So if you eat a diet that is enriched with vegetables, fruits, legumes, nuts, whole grains, and fish, that is probably far better than other types of diet. So this should be sort of the underpinnings of what you should be focused on in what you eat. Again, saturated fat, which comes from a lot from dairy products and animal animal sources, that they contain a lot of saturated fat. So mono and polyunsaturated fats that you see in fish or in nuts really should be the greater proportion of your dietary intake of fats relative to saturated fats. Again, there are other things like sodium that I already alluded to that reducing sodium intake as much as possible is critically important. In the United States, 80% of our sodium intake in our diet comes from processed foods. And interestingly, it's not distributed that way uniformly around the world. So for example, in rural China, in many countries in Asia, 80% of the sodium actually comes from salt that is added to the food. So quite the opposite of what we do here in the United States. And obviously, I don't need to beat this down, but processed meats, refined carbohydrates, sweetened beverages really should be minimized because we know how they influence some of the risk factors, including diabetes, prediabetes, weight, um, et cetera. So I'll just highlight, I don't want to do a lot of science for this audience, but you know, this study is probably the most important um, dietary intervention study uh, that has been published called the PREDIMED trial. It was, it was a study done in Spain, and it was published about five years ago. And basically in the trial, they randomized one group to a traditional low saturated fat diet that we recommend from the American Heart Association. And then two groups randomized to consuming about four tablespoons of olive oil a day. So if you go to Spain or Greece, that's nothing for them to consume that amount. And then the other group was randomized to a handful of healthy nuts like almonds and walnuts. And strikingly, when you look at the primary endpoint of heart attack, stroke, or death, there was about a 30% lower risk of cardiovascular um, events in the patients who are randomized to this Mediterranean-style diet. And so we have really not had any um, randomized clinical trial like this that has shown this kind of benefit. And this study, to be very honest, was very hard to do. And in fact, the paper was originally retracted and republished because they had some issues around the randomization of the trial. Okay, this is a common question that comes up. All right, what are the foods that have a lot of cholesterol? Is it okay to consume foods that have a lot of cholesterol in them, or is that unhealthy? And the answer is that we may not really know the answer to this question. We do know that higher cholesterol intake is associated with higher total and LDL or bad cholesterol levels. And there is some suggestion that higher intake of cholesterol can increase cardiovascular risk, but this is often associated with also a concomitant increase in saturated fat intake. So dissecting out, you know, whether it's independently associated with increased cardiovascular risk is somewhat unclear. The American Heart Association published a, an advisory statement about three years ago 
recognizing some of the challenges in terms of the science. They do say that at least from the evidence that we do have, consuming about one egg a day per adult is okay. We know shrimp and other shellfish may be okay because they contain a lot of cholesterol, but they need to be paired with other sort of lean or plant-based proteins. So again, trying to balance sort of the intake of cholesterol-rich foods with healthier uh, plant-based proteins. However, they do acknowledge, because we don't have enough science, that cautious consumption of cholesterol-rich foods in patients who have underlying lipid disorders like familial hypercholesterolemia, those with diabetes or heart failure, you might consider being more moderate in terms of your intake. Okay, the last sort of section is physical activity and exercise. So again, main thing to point out is that any exercise is beneficial. So there is somewhat of a linear relationship between physical activity and risk of cardiovascular disease. So something is better than nothing. But as Dr. Pellman alluded to, we generally recommend 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise, such as brisk walking, biking, yoga, swimming, or 75 minutes of high intensity physical activity, such as jogging, biking, tennis. And that's highlighted here in this slide, which basically shows what these things mean. So at METs are what we call metabolic equivalents. So sitting, doing nothing, of course, is basically getting a very low level. And then if you see what we define as moderate intensity activity is when it's about three to six metabolic equivalents, such as uh, brisk walking, and then high intensity activity is defined as greater than six metabolic equivalents. Okay, so my key takeaways, number one, Heart disease is a leading cause of death worldwide. Really, optimization of risk factors to lower your risk of heart disease is critically important. So think this concept about genetics versus environment and behavior, I think even in, in epidemiologic studies of heart disease, we know that probably 80% of cardiovascular disease is caused by these risk factors, and only about 20% of it is probably related to genetics. We have an opportunity to fix or try to optimize 80% of our risk and hopefully minimize the effects of that 20%. Knowing your numbers is very important. So I tell all patients, you need to know your blood pressure numbers. You want to know what your baseline cholesterol levels are. You want to know what your weight is because those are just three of the primary things that drive a lot of cardiovascular risk. Optimization of diet, as I mentioned, limiting processed foods and reducing sodium intake and then eating a diet that's enriched with fruits, vegetables, and healthy, unsaturated fats is critically important. And then finally, regular exercise is really fundamental to optimizing our cardiovascular health. So with that, thank you very much for your attention. So we queue up our next speaker. I'll mention that sleep health cannot be overlooked, and poor sleep is connected to multiple health issues, including dementia, cardiovascular disease. On the original Guide to Men's Health podcast, episode 19, reviews sleep health extensively and can give you great information on that subject. So next up, we'll look at benign prostatic enlargement. Many of you know it as benign prostatic hypertrophy or enlargement of the prostate. Dr. Will Fuller is an attending urologist of Virginia Mason Franciscan Health. Will? I'm Will Fuller. Thanks for having me tonight. I'm uh, at Virginia Mason, just about a mile here in, um, just a mile from here in First Hill. 
and I get to talk to you about benign prostatic enlargement. So I think before we get into benign prostatic enlargement, just a little review of what the prostate is and then how does it become enlarged and what does it have to do with symptoms and health for men. So the prostate is a gland. It sits in our pelvis. It's attached to the bladder. And the urethra, the tube you urinate through, passes through the prostate. The normal scenario would be the bladder fills, you get a sensation the bladder is full, you go to urinate, relatively gentle pressures, push the urine through the urethra, through the prostate, and you evacuate it. But you can see when the prostate enlarges, it cinches down on the urethra, it strangulates the urethra, and then the pressures needed to urinate, they become much higher, and what comes along with that are a number of symptoms, and a lot of these will probably sound familiar. They'll sound familiar because about 80% of men by the time they reach 80 years old will have some degree of BPE, benign prostatic enlargement. And if you were to go back a few decades, about 50% of 50-year-olds do. So it's almost a universal fact of aging. The percent chance you have it is roughly your age. So the symptoms that go along with it, you could be waking up at night to urinate. We call this nocturia. Really disruptive, causes sleep deprivation. You can have a weak stream. This slowly accumulates over years or decades. It can be so subtle that you might even not realize it's going on in the beginning. A stream that starts and stops, particularly at the end of the stream. You know, the stream is going, there's a pause, and you finish, and then it just becomes more and more common that that occurs. Waiting for a stream to start, this seems to happen a lot at nighttime. You wake up at night, you really want to go to the john, you really want to go back to sleep, but you're standing over the toilet hoping for that stream to start. Rushing to the bathroom, being the man that always needs to know where the bathroom is, in the worst case scenario, the person that's leaking on the way to the restroom, that's a sign of benign prostatic enlargement. Going too often during the day, a feeling like you can't empty your bladder or really straining and pushing to empty your bladder, these are all symptoms of benign prostatic enlargement. So I think men tend to minimize symptoms. They say, well, I can put up with a lot. So you know, if you can tolerate the symptoms, is it a medical necessity? Is it important to have these symptoms reviewed by a doctor and a urologist? I think it is. So because with these symptoms can become health problems as well. So men say, I can put up with a lot. And then I like this analogy of a reservoir or a lake with a dam. If you're generating high pressures to urinate and there's resistance to that urine coming out, eventually the bladder will just accumulate more and more urine that you can't eliminate. So it becomes like a lake. Your bladder is always full. You think you're okay because you're urinating still, you know, urine's still coming out the urethra. Water's going over the dam, but the lake is full. And then what happens with that? Well, with like a stagnant body of water, you know, that will grow algae. Well, the stagnant urine and bladder, that will create urinary tract infections. And eventually, sludge accumulates in that pond, and that sludge accumulates in the bladder. When it accumulates too much in the bladder, you can develop bladder stones. These are actual calcified debris in the bladder. You can't pass them out. They can cause pain. They can cause bleeding. In the worst case scenario, for men who really have trouble evacuating their bladders, you can back up the urine so much that you start to do permanent kidney damage. So it's not just a symptom issue, but it's a health issue that you should review when these symptoms start. So you have these symptoms, you worry about the consequences of what should you expect when you go to the urologist. The first thing, when you walk in the door, you're very likely gonna be given a urine analysis test. You're gonna pee in a cup. We're gonna see, is there infection there? Is there blood? Is there protein in your urine implying kidney damage? 
Could you have sugar in the urine implying diabetes? All of these can contribute to urine symptoms. You'll likely get an ultrasound of your bladder. We'll see, have you moved from that phase where you just have mild symptoms into that phase where you can't empty your bladder and you're at risk for health consequences? If the answer is yes to some of this, you're likely gonna get several more measurements. You'll get a CT scan or an ultrasound to say, how big is your prostate? You know, like what treatments could work for you? And then you'll get the test that men dread the most, which is called cystoscopy. I don't think you should dread it the most, but, but, but men do. It's where a very small camera is put in the urethra. You know, men routinely get colonoscopies. This is a cystoscopy, a camera in the urinary tract. And this is an actual picture of a cystoscopy when you're just entering the prostate, and you can see what the problem is, right? You can see that the prostate tissue on the left and the right, they're meeting in the middle, and so there's no room to urinate. And you get a lot of resistance to being able to void. So you've had your workup, you've identified that you have benign prostatic enlargement, it's either hurting your quality of life or you're hurting your health, what, what can you do about it? Most men would say, I'd like to do this naturally. I would like, you know, the idea of diet and exercise for cardiovascular health, but the idea of physical therapy or diet modifications, that just hasn't worked out for prostate health yet. It's an ongoing area of research. So the next line of treatment would be a medication. And that generally comes in three categories of medications. The first one would be a muscle relaxer of the prostate and a portion of the bladder. So everywhere you see a blue dot, there's some muscle there. If that muscle is contracted, closed like a fist, it's really hard to urinate. But if you can force that muscle to relax, the urine flows out much more easily, much less resistance, and men see about a 30% improvement in their symptoms. It's a once-a-day pill. It has low side effects. It has good long-term safety profile. So this is our, basically our first choice. For most men who don't want to have a procedure, who have either health ramifications or they have a bad symptoms from benign prostatic enlargement. If the prostate's really big, you could consider trying to shrink it. That's the second class of medications. The prostate needs testosterone to grow. If you starve it of testosterone, which these medications do, it will actually shrink over time. This medication carries a little bit more baggage than the first class. This can cause problems with erections, can cause problems with libido. It can cause men to have a depressed mood. And so we use this one with a lot of caution. We know that it works better in combination with a muscle relaxer. So sometimes you'll be offered both medications. And then the third medication is actually for erections. It was noticed that men who took daily pills for erections had improvement in urine symptoms. Now, we don't really know how that works in a great detail. But if you take a low dose of erection medication every day, you can actually see improvement in your urinary symptoms. I think it would be, I know it's common for men to say, well, I don't want to use a medication daily, certainly don't want to do two, certainly don't want to do three, and move into this idea of multiple medications and polypharmacy. So that's one reason to pursue a operation or a procedure for the prostate. The other one is that sometimes medications just aren't enough and you're still, your health is at risk or the symptoms are troubling. So then you can move into the procedural options. This operation, the transurethral resection of the prostate, some men call it the roto-rooter, this is the tried and true. This has been done for 35, 40 years. And you can see on the far left, this is the normal situation. The prostate's pretty small. The channel through it is large. Urine can pass with no resistance. The middle picture, the prostate's exceedingly enlarged. There is no real channel for the urine to pass. And this person probably is suffering a lot and maybe having bad health consequences. So in the TERP, you put a camera into the urethra, so no incisions in the body anywhere, and you can carve a channel. You can rebuild the channel in the urethra 
by removing small pieces of tissue one by one. And if you do it a few hundred times, you can really rebuild that channel and leave just a shell of the prostate behind. It has good safety. It has low risks, less than a risk of incontinence or leaking urine when you don't want to. That's the dreaded side effect of prostate surgeries. And the durability, again, is you know, a decade or two. So this is why it's kind of our foundational treatment. It's got good safety, good durability, and good efficacy. The recovery is about four to six weeks. As I said, there's no incisions related with this surgery, so the recovery is all urinary. You might have some burning, you might have some blood, you might have to go to the bathroom often or urgently. That tapers off over six weeks. It's not trivial recovery. Men get through it. They say, you know, that first two weeks was troubling. The next couple of weeks I was doing pretty good. And by the time they come to the office in maybe six or eight weeks, they say, I'm glad I did it, but that's been a journey. So that led us to thinking about, could there be sort of less invasive ways of addressing prostatic enlargement, maybe with brisker recovery? And water vapor thermal therapy is, a, is an attractive option. You can see on the left, again, enlarged prostate. The channel is blocked. The middle picture is showing steam being injected into the prostate. That steam injures the prostate tissue. It causes the cells to be injured and die, the blood vessels to become very small, and they don't transmit blood anymore. And so the body has mechanisms for cleaning up tissue that's been injured. Just like you get a bruise, the, the bruise is cleaned up by the body. This injured tissue is, is reabsorbed by the body, and you can reconstitute a channel that way. You need a Foley catheter, one that goes through the penis for a few days after this operation. You have three or four weeks where you have more urine symptoms than you did before. So you're, again, paying some investment to get an improvement. But the durability is good. Only about 5% of men five to eight years after this procedure say, I would really want to do something else. Like I'd want to restart my medications or I'd want to think about another surgery because they were troubled by their symptoms. The quickest recovery is the prostatic urethral lift. Again, on the left, no channel to urinate through. On the right, we redevelop this channel by putting anchored stitches into the prostate. This is all done with a camera through the urinary tract. You put these sutures in that open the channel to urinate through. And in general, well, as a rule, you feel pretty good by two weeks. 90% of men after this procedure at two weeks say they don't have any more symptoms from the surgery. So it's a brisk recovery, and it has pretty good durability. Again, at five to eight years, five to 10% of men say, I would do something else. That means 90% of men say it's still working for me, and I'm pretty happy with it. The new kit on the block is called aqua ablation. It's pretty exciting for men with really enlarged prostates. You can see on the left, this prostate's really large, and we have this dotted blue line. You can use a pressurized beam of water that swings through the prostate, programmed by a urologist and mapped by an ultrasound. And if you swing this high-pressure beam of water through it, it vaporizes the prostate right to the shell of the prostate, leaving behind very little prostate on the right. So this is an exciting option for really large prostates that traditionally might have been more challenging to treat with like a TERP that we use as our first example. I went through the time of highlighting several options for you because there's something that matches most men's goal. Is it a brisk recovery? Is it a preservation of sexual function? Is it just durability and being done with it? There's something out there that will generally address your goals and, and be effective for you. So with that, I'll say thank you, and that's my contact information, so thank you.
This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells, written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at theoriginalguidetomenshealth.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.